27. Get out of my house, Exodus. Any King of the Hail fans out there? Um, two things <clears throat> before we uh, get into the text. Uh, on March 9th, um, New Hope uh, will be doing what it has been doing since 2006, I believe. We'll be having a 7 o'clock a.m. Ash Wednesday service. Um, the service is uh, primarily uh, of a liturgical feel, um, yeah, actually more you know similar to the kind of prayer that we've been doing lately. Um, but it's just one of those things that, for me, has just really spoke to me um, and really helped me begin a season in, sorry, uh, a season um, of the year where I kind of start to, to reshift some things or to kind of re-examine uh, um, some practices, some of which I should probably be doing anyway, um, or and some of which uh, that this is a, like a special season. And Lent, for me, has really been one of those seasons. Um, I uh, typically do... Um, I give up something, you know, for Lent each year, and each year I try to change it up and things like that. Um, but it has been for me a, a, a really a, a transfa- transformational time. Um, and an Ash Wednesday service uh, like we have here, if you see in the uh, fellowship hall, you'll see a picture of Rob Hobson at our first Ash Wednesday service. I believe it was in 2006. Um, so there's that. Also, um, we... I commented and joked that uh, for the first time, I think, since uh, my son's birth, I was uh, actually in the city <laughs> on Friday night, um, and it was because of uh, I went to a lecture on the King James Bible, which, you know, watch out! <laughs> but actually, it was, uh, it was at the Ecumenical Institute at St. Mary's at Northern Parkway and Falls. Uh, basically, they do these things where they have every Friday someone from their lecture, uh, from their, um, their staff gives a lecture. And uh, this one was, was really, really interesting. And um, so they, they do this occasionally. I don't think actually, I think I say that every Friday. It's not every Friday. It's, uh, I think it's every month or something like that. Um, but there's information on the next, next one uh, in the Fellowship Hall on the information counter. So strongly recommend to look into that. Okay. Parshat Hetzava. Um, interesting text today for those of us that, uh, that spend some time with it. Um, BJ remarked that, like, wow, you look at this thing and what are you going to say? <laughs> no, actually, there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff here I found. Um, Tetzava, which is the name um, of this week's Parsha, uh, was actually, it means in Hebrew, you command. Um, so it's a command to command. It's kind of interesting. It, it shows um, the relational aspect of uh, the kind of uh, the text that we've been going through, the work that is to be done um, through the people of Israel that ultimately somehow that God will, you know, um, will show them that ultimately this is going to bless the entire world. Um, Israel, as we saw in chapter 19, is to be a kingdom of priests. They are set apart as a holy nation. Um, just as a priest is set apart in an ancient society, Israel is to be an entire nation that is set apart for God's purpose. They have a unique relationship with God, and that unique relationship is to witness to the world. Um, here we have the next section uh, that describes the workings of the tabernacle and the priests 
that are in the tabernacle. It's significant that the Parsha would be named Tetzava um, because it emphasizes that relational aspect, as I said before, the relational aspect to the priestly work. If the tabernacle was to be the dwelling place among the tribes of Israel, then the nation of Israel is to be God's instrument through which he'll begin his rescue mission to the world. The Hebrew people were called to be a new kind of people um, with a new identity from the world around them. As we move forward with the history of Israel, we'll see that they, um, that they stumble when they assume that they are blessed to the exclusion of others rather than to the benefit of others. Um, the first thing that we get is the care of the menorah, the care of the lampstand. We saw last week, this is in... Uh, Chapter 27, verse 20. We saw last week that the Israelites um, were commanded to make a lampstand out of pure gold. And in Jewish culture, this menorah um, symbolized the everlasting flame of Torah. We also talked about how the menorah was designed with, an ord- with ornamental knobs and flowers that um, made it, were made to look like almond blossom. Um, the almond tree blossomed in late January. Uh, so it could also be seen to symbolize new life. Verse 20, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So the Parsha begins with this text saying that Aaron and his sons are to tend the menorah so that the lamp will burn continuously with pure olive oil. Oil that when burned provided a virtually smoke-free environment. Aaron and his sons were to serve the children of Israel by being their Kohen, their priests, the priests who were held to strict standards of ritual purity, served as mediators between God and his people. They had ceremonial duties, but they were also responsible for the caring of the tabernacle and offering sacrifices. As Torah progresses, we're going to see them act as judges, dispense blessings, give oracles, and even teach God's law. Uh, Look at chapter 28, verse 1. Um, Now take Aaron, your brother and his sons with them, from among the children of Israel, that they may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons. Um, you know, I'm not even going to try to... Uh, Nahab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they, make, may, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. We have a video that uh, will speak to this. When a Kohen, a priest, performed the sacred service in the Mishkan, he wore four garments. The 
Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wore four additional ones for a total of eight garments. Those additional four symbolized his special role as a servant of God and the nation. One of them, on his forehead, was a gold plate engraved with the words Kodesh Lashem, holy to God. On his chest was the Cheshen Mishpat, with 12 precious stones engraved with the names of the tribes. So the first priestly garment that we read about in chapter 28 is the ephod, which apparently is a very difficult word to translate. Um, Even modern-day translations like like the message um, would still use the word ephod rather than than trying to call it a robe or or something else. Um, But what it was was a a sleeveless garment that was made from costly materials um, like gold and wool and linen. The designs on the ephod, they, they were not embroidery. They were actually uh, a part of the weave. On the priest's shoulders were two onyx stones. What? I'm sorry. On the priest's shoulders were two onyx stones set in gold with the um, names of the sons of Israel engraved on them. Um, Check out verse 12. Uh, Yes. And you shall put... The stones, uh, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. So you shall make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten them like braided chains to the setting. Sorry, I kind of should have been over there. Anyway, um... So we see that even the garments that the priests wore were a memorial to the sons of Israel and the work that God was doing in their midst. The high priest, oh, very good, very good. Um, the high priest was to wear these stones before the Lord as a reminder of the nation he represented when he entered the holy place. When we hear about the breastplate of judgment. Um, made of the same woven material as the ephod, but with four rows of precious metals, again, um, with the names of the sons of Israel engraved on them so that he would have the names over his heart when he goes into the holy place. Again, we see the importance of God's relationship with his chosen people. The breastplate is attached to the ephod with gold rings, sorry, with gold rings and braided chains, but the peculiar thing is found in verse 30. No, that's not right. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, 28 verse 30. Um, And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Tumim, 
And they shall be over Aaron's heart, uh, over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of, to, of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now commentators are perplexed by what the Urim and Tumen are. It, they could be interpreted as lights and perfections used to receive oracles from God, but that doesn't really help us understand exactly what they were. The breastplate was um, like a folded piece of cloth. That acted as a sort of pouch um, for whatever the Urim and Turman were, um, but they were kept there. Um, they are mentioned again in, in several places in the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, we're then told of a blue. Um, oh, there we go. Cool. Okay. We're then told of a blue robe that'll cover the priest from the neck to the ground. On the bottom of this robe are weighty balls of fabric that made to look like pomegranates and golden bells to protect the priest when he goes into the area of special sanctity. For the priest's head, they were to make a turban with a blue cord that holds a plate made of pure gold that says, Holiness to the Lord. They're then given underwear and priestly garments for Aaron's sons. Um, and in chapter 29, we're told what needed to be done to hollow them or to make them holy for ministering as priests. The consecration of the priests was an act that set them apart entirely for God's service. It begins with a ritual cleansing and moved, to, moved on to a sin offering um, through the sacrifice of a bull. Then a ram was brought for the burnt offering, an offering made by fire to symbolize the new priest's dedication to God. Although the ram was brought... Um, that was the ram of, or, oh, another ram was brought that was the ram of ordination or insulation. And blood from the ram was placed on the right ear so that, it, that the priest might hear the word of God. The thumb that the hand might perform the duties connected with the priesthood. And the toe that the foot might walk in the path of righteousness. A burnt offering was then made with the ram and then peace offerings um, that rounded off the three types of offerings. There was sin, burnt, and peace. See, they were consecrated for God's work by doing God's work. Um, I have a slide for, yes, uh, check out chapter 29, verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. The fact that they did it seven times is significant. This showed us... Not yet. This showed us the completeness of the consecration and acknowledged the ongoing nature of sin. Sin isn't removed by the washing of the body. The ceremonial sin offerings need to reflect the contagious nature of the beast. Sin is contagious, but as we see here, as we'll see later as well, holiness is also contagious. Um, we're then told some details of the daily offerings that are to be made and the Parsha closes with a sharp turn yeah okay sorry with a sharp turn um, and with a description of the altar with another piece of furniture uh, in the tabernacle the altar of incense Israel was a people that lived in close proximity to animals the animal uh, the smells of the livestock must have filled their camp now in the ancient world 
incense was burned in the presence of kings to mask unpleasant odors. And here, the altar of incense was placed in the holy place um, with the menorah and the table of showbread in front of the veil of the most holy place that held the Ark of the Covenant. The altar itself was made of gold and acacia wood. And like the other tabernacle furniture, it was fitted for poles to make it portable. But while the other furniture um, illustrated God's work, the work that God was doing, um, the incense represented Israel's work that was offered up to the Lord, namely prayer. See, these fine spices were mixed on the altar and the smoke from the burning incense would go into the most holy place to kind of uh, get a picture of what, um, what our prayers are like in the presence of God, um, these prayers that are given up to God. Um, about 11 years ago, I began a, uh, a journey that at the time I called a call to ministry. To be honest, I, um, I called it that because I really didn't have any other words to describe it. Um, I had become a Christian roughly five years before that, and I knew that from the start God was asking um, for my service, but I really wasn't, um, it wasn't until I graduated high school that the pieces started to present themselves. I, I put it that way because um, I in no way want to make it sound like the pieces started to come together. Um, I actually almost felt like I wanted the pieces to be separated. Uh, I, didn't, I wanted to start assembling things, but I didn't really start fitting things together. I felt like that's what God was telling me. Um, but I do remember having this profound sense that Jesus was working in my life. Um, actually, I had come to notice... Um, how different uh, than I was from many of the other Christians that I knew. Over and over again, I felt like God told me to go left when oceans of people went right. Uh, There were things about my Christian faith that absolutely thrilled many of the people that I went to church with while I sat there and shrugged unenthused. For a while, I I thought that I fought it, but then I started to get into some aspects of my faith that um, made me jump out of my seat while other people that I knew seemed to be unimpressed. Uh, And I became, um, during this time, just utterly fascinated with the character of God. I was never a good student, but um, and I was far from head of the class, but something about the nature of divinity... Uh, just made me hunger for more. It, it would have been easy to, to put my faith down then um, for a few years and, and go through college and, and my early 20s without you know, the rules and regulations that I, I lied to myself and told myself that that's what Christianity was all about. But the character of God, the character of God that interested me was the thing that interested me more than anything else. That was the thing that just kept me going. Um, And in the preaching prep for this week, I came across a phrase that I think describes pretty well what I was struggling with then, and I think I still feel today. Mysterium tremendum. I actually learned some Latin this week. Um, See, I I was taken back when I I came across this verse in today's text. Um, Chapter 29, verse 44. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting in the altar. 
I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The, the term consecrate can be said to sanctify or to make holy. God will make the work of the tabernacle holy. God will make the work of Aaron and sons, the priests, holy. Only God can make something holy. The term holy is a fascinating word to contemplate and meditate on. It may be easy to, to read the word and keep moving right along because it's a word that we typically expect to see. Um, it, it comes up a lot in Scripture. If we talked about it, um, you might say that the word holy means pure. That uh, holy is um, that to make holy something is to purify something. Um, but that, that doesn't quite do it. Check out Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels here were saying much more than purity, purity, purity. The, idea, uh, the items in the tabernacle were to be used in a pure way, but the primary meaning of the word holy is separate. To make something holy would be to set something apart for God's purposes. There's another term that comes up when talking about God's holiness, and that's the word um, transcendent. We also talk about God's holiness being transcendent. The definition of that word is going beyond, surpassing ordinary limits. So the transcendence of God would speak to the sense that God is above and beyond all. He's higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world, and the world has no power over him. When we talk about God's holiness in a way that uses terms like pure and transcendent, we're drawing attention to all that God is, the very nature of God. Is God holy? Actually, according to the seraphim in Isaiah 6, he He's holy, holy, holy. A threefold repetition is the strongest form of superlative. And that's what happens when Isaiah catches just a glimpse of God. Look what happens next in verse 4. And the priests, oh, sorry. Uh, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am undone. Rudolf Otto was a German scholar. 
who lived in the 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. See, he examined um, a wide variety of people from a variety of cultures and observed how they behaved when they encountered something as holy. And what he found was that it was very difficult for people to find words for the holy. Although many people could talk about holiness, there was always, there was always something else that um, seemed to defy explanation. There was also, always, always something that was beyond their words. He then used the phrase mysterium tremendum um, to describe this awe-filled mystery that just smacked people in the face as they groped for words to explain the holy. He said this, The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were, thrillingly vibrant and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. It may burn in sudden eruption from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions, or lead to the strangest excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport and ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink to an almost grisly horror and shuddering. It has its crude, barbaric, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations. And again, it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling, speechless humility of the creature in the presence of whom or, or what? In the presence of that which is a mystery, inexpressible to all creatures." That struggle is in every word of Exodus. The fearful mystery, my friends, is is for me what begins to tie it all together. First, we consider that God isn't just holy. He's holy, 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 infinitely set apart for his creation, from his creation. And then we see that the character of holiness isn't distant and uninvolved from his creation, but rather it hears the cry of his people. The people whom he called to be an instrument of salvation for the world that he gives them laws and he, that will give them identity in the world and a tabernacle that will show them that even in his holiness, he is dwelling in their midst. Then here in Parshat Tatzava, we read of the clothing and the consecration of the priests, the ones who are to be meditators, uh, mediators to God for the kingdom of priests that will somehow bring about salvation to all nations. Let's pray. God, speak to us how you would when we contemplate things like a fearful mystery, this this awe-filled mystery. Help us to be comforted in the fact that we can't describe your character completely. You are beyond us. In your ways, we couldn't even begin to fathom, yet you reach out to us. You reach out to us and you show us that you love us. And that all-filled mystery fills us when 
we look at the cross, when, when we see, uh, when we hear the sounds of the spirituals, it says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. God, meet us in that fearful mystery. Meet us in the mystery of the work that you were doing with your people then and the work that you're doing with your people now. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.